6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of James, chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. You know, sometimes we take up topics here and stuff, and we sometimes go a little on the fringe or take things that are sort of they're different views, and we'll express both views and move on. We're in some deep, deep stuff here. And I won't ask for a show of hands, but one of the questions is, are you saved? And if so, how do you know? Well, I believe the Word of God. Praise God, that's great. But is there evidence in your life that you are? A little tougher. Now, James is going to develop this with a second example. And the next example, he deliberately picks one to shock you. And he, he takes the most bizarre example you can imagine. Verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The demons also believe and tremble. Ooh. Are demons real? I think in this audience, and I think most of you are sophisticated enough to recognize they are. One of the great discoveries. It's interesting. 10, 20 years ago, if you had this kind of a discussion in a church, Christian group of Christians, you had an uphill battle talking about demons and the, the Christian community is very comfortable talking about Jesus Christ, talking about all the, the stuff. But you start talking about Satan as a real person. You start talking about demons, and people get uncomfortable. They sort of, in the back, they may acknowledge the vocabulary, but in the back of my mind, they say these are maybe idioms for some kind of fuzzy darkness. They don't think of them as a sentient, resourceful, malicious adversary. Today's world, it's, it's interesting, maybe more, maybe more than 10 years, but certainly the last 20 years, say, there's been a whole change in our culture. There was a time on the universities or in the high schools you'd argue about the existence of God. Today, there are many, many uh, uh, debates. Not whether God exists, it's who's going to win. And you start, you start seeing the embodiment of uh, supernatural beings of various kinds that are painted as good guys. It was interesting when you see, just to speak of the entertainment media, uh, in the movie Independence Day, when these, there was this, some kind of you know, interaction with presumably aliens from outer space. And these people crowded on rooftops of buildings, welcoming them, like they're going to be the answer to all our problems. Now, of course, that's just entertainment. It's dealing on some popular myths and whatever. But, but it's interesting how many people today regard the paranormal as intrinsically good. They don't doubt its reality, but they not only acknowledge its reality, they're perfectly willing to take it comfortably as our friend, potentially our friends. <laughs> anyway, the good news, I think, that the biblical churches, churches that take the Bible seriously, do, they have, I think, rediscovered the reality and the activity of demons. Uh, there are many, many churches that have had some kind of experience that endorses that. Anyone that has a doubt about that, I encourage you, with a certain amount of desperation in my voice, to get into Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18, where Paul admonishes you 
in strong terms to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against demonic powers. And he enumerates them there. The armor you need to wear is very specific. And uh, it's just as specific as physical armor, but far more important. He admonishes you to put on the whole armor of God, not just a few of your favorite pieces. And there are seven elements. You need to understand what those seven elements are. Do an intensive study of Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 18. Seven elements there. Do some homework. Don't be satisfied until you know what those seven elements are and that you have them on. You don't put the armor on during the battle. You put it on before it starts. And you're already on enemy turf. Let's move on. It's interesting that the demons have faith. (laughs) There is not... I don't believe that there's a demon in the entire universe that's an atheist. (laughs) Right? Isn't that what James is saying? You say you believe. You know, devils also believe and tremble. He makes another point. They are further ahead than many Christians. Because many Christians believe intellectually. It's a remote academic definitional thing. There's no emotion associated with it. The devils are ahead of you. They at least have the consciousness to shudder and tremble. It's scary stuff. By the way... <laughs> I think some of the demons have better theology than we have. We're so proud of our... No, hey, they believe in the existence of God. They believe in the deity of Christ. They even witnessed of Christ. Whenever they met Christ, when he was on the earth, they bore witness to his sonship. And uh, we should probably take a look at a couple of these... Uh, Mark 3, 11 and 12 is one place. Let's take the Matthew account, Matthew 8. It's in, it, for those of you who want in your notes, you can put Mark 3, Matthew 8, and Luke 8. But I thought we'll just, uh, I'll just pick one of these. We'll take Matthew 8. Let's glean what we can. Pick it up, oh, it's right after the coming of the storm and so forth. We'll pick it up at verse 28. And when he has come to the other side, he was on the Sea of Galilee and he calmed the storm. And when he was come to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, uh, there met him two possessed with devils coming out uh, of the tombs, exceeding fierce. And many people have a real hang-up because some of the other Gospels only mention one. One was apparently more prominent. There apparently were actually two. But anyway, so that, one, so that no man might pass that way. And, and behold, they cried out saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Notice, they recognize, this is Matthew 8. This is early in his ministry. It's not Matthew 13 or 28. It's 8. Get the picture here. What do we have to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Wow. That's more theology than a lot of gra- seminary graduates with PhDs and H2SO4s behind their names. Art thou come hither... To torment us before the time? What a strange insight. They apparently understand that they've got a destiny that's coming. What are you doing here so early? Not time yet. What's going on? These are knowledgeable questions. 
These are not hallucinations by some psychiatric problem that this character had out in the rocks somewhere. You know, many people think demons and stuff, that's New Testament idioms for what we now call psychiatry today. I hope not. (laughs) I have some concerns about modern psychiatry. That ain't one of them. No, no, these are recorded in the Word of God in many places, many ways, to make it clear. In fact, in fact, this particular episode is one of the strangest, and we should maybe dwell on it as we go here. I think we're not crowded for time. We'll make it. They asked the question, verse 29, verse 30, and there was a, a good way off from them a herd of many swine uh, feeding. So the devils, or demons, besought him, saying, If thou castest out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. In the other accounts, in the Mark or Luke accounts, it'll mention they were they assumed if he didn't do that, they would go into the Abuso, back to where they came. They didn't want to go there. One of the strange things we infer from the many New Testament accounts of these demons is they seek embodiment. They seem to be powerless except to the extent that they can embody a, a person that has broken that for what, whatever reason is uh, the gateway of the will has been opened. And uh, suffer us to go into that herd of swine. Uh, some would say, what is a herd of swine doing in Israel? That's not kosher. <laughs> it isn't. They are on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're in the area of the Decapolis. They were there to, to support a Greek population or a Gentile population. Why do they want to go into the herd of swine? I don't know. But even more mysterious, why does Jesus... Give them what they asked for. They asked for it. He said, okay, fine, go. Verse 32. He said to them, go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. One of the reasons, I've often wondered, why is this in the scripture? What's going on here? Why did the Lord want us to, if for no other reason, and to teach us that these are real. These aren't idioms. These aren't figures of speech. These aren't labels that we might now today use for some other kind of mental arrangement. No, no. These are sentient beings asking permission. Jesus granted the permission and they entered these swine. Now, I don't know what hap- if what happened subsequently, I don't know if it's a result of their indwelling them or if that was the fine print. Go ahead. Where Jesus says, go ahead. But then, he, then somehow he drives them off because the swine, obviously... The whole herd of swine ran violently down a deep place into the sea and perished in the waters. I don't quite understand. You know, I, I, this raises more questions than I have answers for. In other words, if, is that what they wanted? Or was that just, you know, yes, you can go, but not for long kind of thing. And if so, whatever, in any case, why is this in the scripture? I think if not, no other reason for us to recognize that these things. By the way, do you know how many swine there were? Do you know how many, many demons were in this guy? 2,000. 2,000. That's in, in, in one of the other gospel accounts. It mentions the number of swine. Wow. And they that, they that kept them, that's why we always call this the case of the deviled ham. But I... <laughs> you know, so, yeah, it's bad, I know. Uh, and they that kept them fled and went their way into the city and told everything and what was befallen of those that possessed of devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Sounds great. No, no. <laughs> they came out, and when they saw them, they saw him that he should depart out of their coasts. Religion was not good for the economy. <laughs> I mean, these guys got wiped out of their whole herd. They're upset. They're upset. <laughs> 
somehow it brings back a memory. We have a, a relative got in a situation in Southern California where this particular party had a very, very visible disease, a shrinking of the skin, a, a malady that was very, very painful, very, very final, very, very visible is the real point, and was invited to a healing service that during which this particular party was miraculously healed, visibly. That's what makes it so spectacular, because this wasn't one of those things, I've got a backache or something. This was conspicuously visible, and there was a, it was a supernatural healing took place. Well, they went to their church to give glory to God. And people who knew this person, you know, should have been flabbergasted because they, they have a before and after situation, right? And the pastor very gently took them aside and acknowledged that that's wonderful, isn't God great, but could you worship somewhere else? Because they didn't want to get into these controversies about gifts of the Spirit and all that stuff. Very, very strange stuff. Anyway, getting back to the demons here, they knew and acknowledged their exi- the existence of a place of punishment, they recognized, in the Mark account especially, they recognized Jesus Christ as the judge. And um, interestingly enough, they submit to the power of his word. Now, they may not have had a choice, but I mean, all that's embedded in this passage. It's interesting to me, they were not just touched in the intellect, they trembled, according to James. They believe and tremble, James makes the point. See, a person can be enlightened in his mind and even stirred in his heart and still be lost. That's disturbing. That's a very, very upsetting insight. Using the demon, James used the example. I didn't. He did. And what's the example? Here are ones that intellectually know what's going on, and they're stirred emotionally about it, and they're lost. That should make all of us a little uncomfortable. See, it's not a confirming experience to tremble. And you can fill in that blank with many other kinds of, of, of emotional responses. That's not, a confirm, that's not the kind of confirming experience that James is going to focus on. True faith involves something more. Something that can be seen and recognized, namely a changed life. This implies that hell is going to have its share of monotheists, Trinitarians, Orthodox theologians, and lost. Verse 20. James continues, but wilt thou, O vain man, wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? He says it a second time. He'll say it a third time before the passage is over. You know, you've got to look at this the way, to, the way I guess, see, I made it because I'm a businessman. I look at this as an investment. God has made an investment, and he expects a return. A farmer plants a tree, expects the tree to bear fruit. If it doesn't bear fruit, he replaces the tree. Cuts it down and gets another one. And Jesus, that, that analogy, that figure of speech, that, that, uh, that uh, approach is mentioned several times in Scripture. The way we would look at it, he expects there should be earnings on investment. If you have a portfolio investment, you weed out the losers. The ones that just, for whatever reason, didn't work out. We could go from here if we want to. Matthew 13, the four soils. And how were those four events, the four different kinds of soils? By the fruit bearing. Some were dry, you know, various reasons they didn't bear fruit. The fourth one did, of course. Now, faith without works is dead. The word is actually implies from the Greek, it's a play on words, really means useless. Useless. Dead, vain, empty, useless. Faith that has no works doesn't work. 
And he emphasized all through here, get, get, I want, the main point he's making, it is not faith versus works, as we generally tend to jump to that issue. It's the idea that they're inseparable. If you have faith without works, it's empty. It's faith. Now, that, we've mentioned two kinds of faith. We've mentioned the dead faith. We've mentioned the demonic faith. And, of course, he's going to obviously lead to, and to keep the D's working, we'll say dynamic faith. Huh? True saving faith is based, of course, on the Word of God. Because we received our spiritual birth, how? By the word of God. James mentioned that in chapter 1. We went through that then. Romans 10, 17. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing what? The word of God. And faith, of course, as I think all of us recognize if we think about it, is no better than its object. I can have faith in the chair to sit on it, but I don't have faith in the chair to save my soul. I mean, you have, faith is meaningless without an object, and obviously it's a tragedy in our, in our federally enforced paganism in our schools is that any object is good as another. That's good for you. I have mine. You know, in other words, as if it doesn't matter. Whatever you choose uh, is the underlying uh, myth. And dynamic faith, uh, James is going to use some examples here, involves the whole person, the intellect, the emotions, yes, and the will. And the will. The, mar- the mind understands the truth. The heart desires the truth. But the will acts upon the truth. And again, I I, I love this summary. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence. Faith is obeying in spite of the consequences. And he's going to use several examples here to to talk about. Now, before we go on, we might talk about works just a little bit. There are all kinds of works, too. There's works of the law in Galatians 2.16. There's works of the flesh in Galatians 5.19. There's wicked works in Colossians 1.21. There's dead works in Hebrews 9.14. But there's also good works, and that's what he's going to talk about here in his couple of interesting illustrations. Very contrasting illustrations, actually. Verse 21. He continues, says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac, uh, his son, upon the altar? Now, it's really, he's obviously drawing, he's Jewish, and his, his readers are Jewish, so he doesn't have to fill in the blanks. For you and I, as Gentiles, we should... Take the time, we won't hear in the study, but I encourage you to take some time to reflect on the career of Abraham. It really starts in Genesis 12, but Genesis 15 is very, very critical. 15, and then what he's drawing on specifically is the events in Genesis 22, known in Hebrew as the Akedah, the offering of Isaac. A very, very interesting passage where God asks, tells Abraham to offer his son Isaac. And that's a staggering passage. God is certainly not endorsing child sacrifice on the one hand, and yet that's what he's asking Abraham to do. Now, when, by the time Abraham gets to chapter 22, he's learned a lot of lessons. But back in chapter 15, Abraham was initially spiritually bankrupt, but God added to his account. One of the verses that's quoted several times in the New Testament is that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So Abraham was justified before God by his faith, demonstrates that by his works here in in, uh, this passage. Justification in the declarative sense, in the judicial sense, is a one-time act. And you and I are justified by God's action, not what we do. And something that we appropriate to ourselves through faith. But it's not something the sinner does. It's something that God does for the sinner. But the question is, how can 
the person himself and more importantly maybe the outside world also know that he's justified in a demonstrative sense by faith and the answer of course is by a changed life and obedience and that's what Abraham is going to demonstrate here in chapter 22 in chapter 22 Abraham is demonstrating to you and I that he is already saved he wasn't saved in chapter 22 he was saved in chapter 15 verse 6 both uh, Paul in both Romans 4 and Galatians 3 makes that point and quotes that verse on that basis. That's how Abraham was saved. By faith. And Paul, both in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, quotes that. But more than 30 years later, Abraham demonstrates that he was saved by being obedient. God says, I want you to offer you know, your only son Isaac. Very strange phrase because he had Ishmael, but as far as God's concerned, he's focusing on the son of the promise. I want you to offer him on a mountain. I'm going to show you. The next morning, not a week of prayer and confirmation and whatever. No, no. The next morning, he gets up early, takes Isaac and two young men and a donkey, and they head for a three-day journey. Turns out to be a three-day journey. And it's interesting, when they get to the place that God had appointed, the donkey and the two men stay at the bottom, and Abraham says to the, young, the, the men that, that accompanied him, wait here, I and the lad are going yonder and we will come back to you. Abraham expected to come back down the hill with Isaac, even though he's going to offer him. Interesting attitude. You have to unravel. You unravel this primarily by looking at Galatians 3 and Romans 4 and also Hebrews 11, verse 19. You discover several things. You discover that what saved, what, the, the, the issue here, the key faith issue, is in the resurrection of Isaac. Abraham had been given a promise by God that Isaac would have children. Isaac didn't have a child. He wasn't married yet. He didn't have a children. God, you want me to kill him? you got a problem, God. I don't. I know you're going to do it because I trust you. So I knew he's going to be resurrected. So it's interesting. Very, you could, you, we could spend easily the whole evening just on that. The subtleties all through that little passage in Genesis 22. And obviously Abraham goes up there and, and he's ready to do the deed. And by the way, you need to also understand, don't get misled by your little Sunday school coloring books. Isaac wasn't just a little kid. We even have some very elegant sculptures given to us as gifts, you know. It's always, he's always portrayed in art as a little child. No, he's probably close to 30, not over 30. And he went willingly. He volunteered. If you read the Hebrew, it says they both went together. No, the Hebrew says they both went in agreement. And um, Abram's all ready to do the deed. Has the blade ready to go. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the emotional churning in Abram's gut? And yet he knew that God was going to have, he was going to have children by Isaac because God told him that before Isaac was born. Back in Genesis 15. You've got to read Genesis 15 to get the whole profile of this thing. And he is ready to do it. That's faith. Obedience in spite of the apparent consequences. That's faith. It's not believing in spite of evidence. That's a myth. That doesn't grab it. Obviously, you all know the story. The angel intervenes. They substitute a ram. And if not before, by then, Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy. Because he names the place, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Verse 14. I don't know how much he knew, but he knew that he was acting out a foreshadowing of something in the future. And 2,000 years later, on that exact spot, another father offers his son as an offering for sin. 
And I think you all know a couple of chapters later, chapter 24, Abraham. And of course, Abraham, that's what's, it's also called a type. Abraham's the type or a foreshadowing of the father. Isaac as the son, they're acting out in, a, in a, what's called, the, in literary terms or coding terms, it's a macro code, it's, it's a type. It's interesting that two, a couple chapters later, later, Abram has his eldest servant commissioned to go to a far country and gather a bride for Isaac. Don't take Isaac, don't want him out of the country. You go there, get the, bring the bride home. And so the eldest servant, don't think he's a menial, he's a business partner. He would have inherited everything Abram had if he didn't have issue. He takes on the mission and he goes there and he qualifies Rebecca by a well and then arranges with the, her family to, it's up to her. She agrees to marry a bridegroom she has not seen. So they make arrangements and uh, uh, this elder servant brings her back. Again, we have a type. Abraham's a type of the father. What is the elder servant a type of? The Holy Spirit. The eldest servant's name is not in that chapter 24. You have to go back to chapter, I think, 15 to discover his name is Eliezer, which means comforter. He's the type of the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, not only is he comforter, he's always portrayed in the scripture in a type as an unnamed servant. See the same thing in the book of Ruth. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer. Ruth is the Gentile, ultimately the Gentile bride of Boaz. Who introduces Ruth to Boaz? An unnamed servant. And why? Because in, in John 16, Jesus tells us that when the comfort comes, he will not testify of himself. And how literally that's true. Fascinating to see the artistry. But what's really interesting is when you get back to Genesis 22 and you read that chapter, I want you to make, pay attention to verse 19. Because after this whole event up there on the hill, verse 19 says, And Abraham came down, joined the two young men, and they went home. Three-day journey back to Beersheba. And they dwelt in Beersheba. If you look at that, you and I jump to the conclusion, I'm sure it's correct, that Abraham and Isaac came down the hill, they joined the two young guys that were waiting, and the four of them went home. But that's not what it says. It says Abraham came down, joined the two young men, and they went home to Beersheba, and they dwelt in Beersheba. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.